Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. And also joining us to break down your week in media and marketing is our senior media reporter Zoe Samuels. Hello. And our news editor Paul Woolbank. Hello. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to ex-bachelor turned health marketing expert Sam Wood about his thoughts on the honey badger. He's tapped into a male audience that wasn't there before. Why he hasn't posted on Twitter since 2016. I think I got 3,000 Twitter followers in the first two days and I never touched it again. (laughs) And the truth behind the stolen recipes. What we said was half quoted and sort of misrepresented. But first, the week's topics. A tough ratings week for 10 and for the Today Show. The Icon Court case rumbles on. And NAB restructures its executive team in the wake of the Royal Commission. So 10 didn't have a great end to last week or a great start to this week with um, a ratings performance that um, some might describe as abysmal. Let's get straight into, let's talk ratings, Viv. Well, I think I used the word dismal rather than abysmal in writing this through, if there is a distinction. I I stand corrected. (laughs) Uh, I think I just wanted to use alliteration with delivers dismal uh, rather than delivers abysmal. But look, they they have had a, a rough run of late on nights where they're not screening the very popular season of The Bachelor. So... On Saturday night, one of Seven's multi-channels, Seven Mate, secured a larger audience share than Ten's primary channel. Now, and, and that was because of the AFL, presumably. Yeah, look, we are in AFL finals season, and so in different cities, Seven will screen the match on maybe its main channel, but in other cities, it will be on Seven Mate. And look, people were obviously more interested in that than what 10 was screening so 10 only had a 7.1 percent audience share on saturday night compared to seven mates 7.8 and this is something that yes we've got the sort of the struggles of 10 at the weekend but also i think one of the arguments seven would make is it's not being given sufficient credit for how it's performing at the moment particularly on friday and saturday nights where it often runs away with it yeah look it is often a boring story to write about Friday and Saturday nights because it is a bit like seven wins again. They've got a formula that works on those nights. It's often something like Better Homes and Gardens is helping them do well and then the AFL, particularly in final season, obviously helps them do really well. Ten, by comparison, certainly has not nailed its weekend programming. So on Sunday night when seven has little big shots and nine has the block, which gets one point two nine six million viewers 10 had now you see me to the movie which had two hundred eighty-two thousand metro viewers so they do have a programming hole i'm not sure what else they could have put there they don't have the simpsons anymore they don't have modern family anymore they can't put the bachelor on every night the cbs influence doesn't seem to be here yet but now you see me not even the first movie the second movie Obviously wasn't very popular. Now you see me, now you don't <laughs> watch at all. Um, and I suppose that, the, you know, the, the other sort of hidden challenge for, for 10 is, or not so hidden challenge, I suppose, is just the lack of sport coming down the track as well. Um, they're going to lose Big Bash, which um, 
will hurt them even more. Yeah, look, one thing that 10 could rely on is dominating the ratings in January because the Big Bash League and what they did with that in televising it and programming it was so successful when other channels might have arguably taken their foot off the accelerator, 10 just did so well. They don't have that anymore. That's moving across to seven. And nine will have the tennis and and various other big things coming. So they're going to need something and it's going to have to be something different. Yeah, and Zoe, obviously we've written in in, in recent days about the commissions of Sunday night takeaway, which is based on the, the the UK ITV format of Saturday night takeaway. Dancing with the Stars is coming over from Seven because they've got that format and uh, changing rooms as well. Do you think so? We've got this. This I've always thought it's completely weird, but the, the official rating season and the non-official rating season, which mm. I know we've talked about before. Do you think we'll see Ten put some of these shows to air? In January, for instance, well, sport is still showing on seven and nine as a sort of alternative to the sport before the official rating season begins. I think so. I think that they are still competitive, even if it is non-rating season. What they're going to try and have to do is, and there's not, take out the ratings bit of it, there's also advertisers who are putting money on 10 throughout January and December when that non-ratings period exists. They're going to be, have to still be delivering audience numbers and decent numbers. They can't be looking at a 200,000 audience on a, on a Sunday evening or anything like that. They're going to have to at least make an attempt to attract audiences to replace Big Bash. They won't probably be able to attract as big audience as Big Bash, but they've got to do something. Uh, the other thing I'd probably add to that is that in all of this, the consistency piece, and while we can talk about how great seven's 10 does, sorry, not seven, 10 does on a Wednesday or Thursday or have you been paying attention bringing in 800,000 on viewers on a Monday, that's not going to make up for the fact that it's a seven share on a Sunday or a six share on a Saturday night. You need to have a consistent slate throughout the week and throughout the year, and I think that's what 10's struggling with at the moment. Interestingly, though, when we've written about 10's dismal ratings, the comment thread does get quite split where some people say 10 management need to take responsibility, CBS need to step up here and and all of that. But then other people who are sort of claiming that they're media buyers or involved in that side of things are saying, look, you're getting what you pay for with 10. We're not worried. They are actually delivering us what they said they'd deliver so us. So 16 to 39-year-olds, that sort of young, maybe some 25, 54-year-olds, the, the slightly younger demographic, and hey, you, you you pay less to reach them. Yeah, so I mean, I'm assuming 10 is charging significantly less than, than 9 when 9 can deliver 1.296 million. Yeah, look, my understanding is, and this is where, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody will, will correct me if I'm wrong uh, once this is, is published, the power ratio is the thing, which is if you get a... 20% share of audience, do you get a 20% share of the market? And I understand that 10 under MCN, which was the, the sales house that they're about to part with, was delivering a power ratio of more than one, which meant that they were delivering on that. Uh, whether they can still do that now they're splitting, of course, will be yet another issue for them. Yeah, so it's just interesting to see what will happen when they bring their sales in-house and what they are delivering people because 
even though some commenters are arguing, look, it's fine, surely there's no one jumping up and down about getting 282000 at 7.30pm on a Sunday. Well, just before we, uh, we, we move on to the, uh, the travails of the Today Show over on Nine, Paul, your thoughts on Tan? Yeah, it's interesting with this because we're in September now and we've really got to find out what they're going to be doing in September. When I spoke to Paul Anderson at the time of the Melbourne Cup announcement, he said that they had things coming in summer that uh, were going to be non-sports and give viewers an alternative. As I say, we're getting pretty close to that and I, I would imagine that buyers would like to know around about now what uh, what they've got on on the plate there. But uh, it is going to be a test of how important sport is because Commonwealth Games this year, we've seen this weekend the AFL really delivering, I'm sure the NRL as well. Uh, these are things that are uh, that are getting the viewers tuning in. Yes, worth noting that uh, I've seen it reported this week that um, a delegation of media buyers are headed over to the US to, uh, to hear from CBS what's coming down the track. Plus, of course, we've got all of the upfront season coming along soon anyway. But let's, uh, let's move on to uh, nine who um, have got their own issue in, uh, in, 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 in the breakfast time slot, the Today Show, Zoe. So on Wednesday this week, the Today Show dipped below the 200,000 Metro viewer mark for the first time in 12 years. I think the number was actually 199,000, so just below, but below nonetheless. It's an interesting situation just given that we have been tracking Sunrise and Today for a lot of this year. I have been. I love my little graphs. And you know, it's fairly consistent in that Sunrise is just above today, but only by about 10, 20,000 Metro viewers. What it seems to have happened is that that seems to over time have been separating. And I don't know if that is the consequence of the departure of the co-host of today, Lisa Wilkinson, and, and the arrival of Georgie Gardner, who's working with Carl Stefanovic in the mornings, or whether it's just a sign that the audience is changing. The media is very quick in these instances to blame the Carl Stefanovic factor. You know, once when things were going well for today, it was the Carl Stefanovic factor. And now that things aren't going so well for today, it's again the reverse Carl Stefanovic factor. The argument being that when his personal life spilled over into the headlines, the audience turned against him. Now he was no longer a family man. Yeah. Uh, so I just wonder, Tim, do you think there is any truth to that is are people tuning out because of Carl or are people just turning off breakfast television a bit in general look there's so much intricacies of science or pseudoscience to this you know the the amount of decision making that goes into hosts and, and how they're rating individual states as well so I you know, as, as Zoe's been alluding to, there's been this cycle. So for years today was on top, then sunrise came along and it kind of exploded past, you know, that sort of, uh, in the day, Koshy and, uh, David Kosh and, uh, Mel Doyle. Um, and that really went away with things. And then Mel Doyle moved on and there was instead this arrival of, uh, Samantha Armitage. And I think one of the things behind that was the fact that the assumption was she would do slightly better in Queensland, which did seem to come come good, but nonetheless, that felt like a you know a, a, a real risk. But that that transition was managed quite well by Seven. You then hit that point where just before they lost Lister, as Zoe's been saying, the gap was closing. It really looked like Sunrise was going to have, after years and years, its last year as the lead. But now it started to step away again. So there, you know. Th- some something has changed in the dynamic. You're right that both are down. You know, sort of. You know, we there was a point when Sunrise was getting in the high four hundreds, and they're not doing it either. But you know, de- definitely, you know, there are there are 
other factors in play. You know, I think I, I think if we were to do the maths, the, the the number of people just watching of a morning across all networks has probably fallen away a little bit as well. But uh, you know, it certainly feels like that's hurt nine a little bit more than seven at the moment. Yeah, I wonder as well if. I, I don't ever have time to watch either show in the morning and I don't know if anyone around this table does, but it seems to be well documented in the media that Georgie and Carl on today at nine just don't get along. And I think there was probably a curiosity factor where people were tuning in to watch that to see if there was any drama or any tension, particularly when Stefanovic's Uber conversation leaked slash was potentially illegally, allegedly recorded in an Uber people wanted to see what was going on, but but now perhaps the dynamic just isn't working and the curiosity is gone and people just aren't tuning in. And look, and I suppose while we're uh, talking about the uh, the challenges for 10 and 9, we ought to just look at one potential one for 7. Um, so he Take Me Out, which is like the latest of many, many dating shows for mm-hmm. 7. Um, certainly the, the kind of the headline overnight metro numbers haven't been that great. But when you look at this stuff targeting this younger demographic, and we had this conversation about Love Island when Nine commissioned that, are there other ways of thinking about the audience for this type of show? Definitely. What we did when we were looking at Nine's Love Island was the overnight numbers, sorry, combined with the video on demand numbers. So looking at how many people were watching it once the show had finished on air, were they watching in the morning, the afternoon, and what Nine saw at the time was a huge influx of the younger demographic tuning in the next day in the morning that, you know, think uni students and that. Take me out from our understanding is starting to do a similar thing. You know, you've got people tuning in at a later time that suits them to either catch up on one episode or watch a series of them. And while overnight last night the number was only 503,000, if that audience is transitioning or if it's a different kind of audience, an audience that maybe doesn't have a TV in their home, as so many of my friends don't, then you kind of do have to consider those numbers and you do have to look at the overall success of a show on those numbers. I know that's a conversation that Tim Warner, the CEO of Seven, Hugh Marks, CEO of Nine, and Paul Anderson, CEO of Ten, have banged on about. Obviously, they still like the overnight figures, as we've discussed so many times on this podcast, but maybe it is time that, depending on who you're targeting for a show, we are looking at a much bigger picture. Which, of course, means sometimes you won't know for perhaps 28 days until you've got a, a hit or a miss. Exactly. And from our perspective, being able to communicate that, if we're waiting 28 days, when you talk about a news cycle and what's newsworthy and stuff, how do you communicate that? Do you do a roundup at the end of it? Do you communicate it weekly? But I'm looking forward to seeing how this show evolves on the digital platform on, on seven plus, because I have a feeling that this could be another thing like love Island or even married at first sight was quite successful online as well. Well, next we head to the Supreme court. A test case in court continued this week with experts debating whether Icon, the uh, full service agency, botched a marketing campaign for its client, hair thinning brand e- Evolis. Is that how I pronounce it, uh, Vivian? Oh, I'm, I'm not an expert on hair thinning or hair thinning products. I think you're correct. Please, please accept my apologies <laughs> for implying otherwise. But I also think we should clarify it's a hair thinning product. It doesn't make your hair thin. Uh, it's meant to help people who have thinning hair. And, and this is Maybe almost, that's where it went wrong. Well, well, this is almost part of the problem in that part of the criticism that have been levied at these ads is that they're focused on somebody with a full head of hair and it looks a lot like a beauty product ad, a shampoo product ad, or a you know DIY 
die job at home type ad. This is somebody running on a, a mountaintop with the, their wind. They're, they're very their, their full hair head of hair wind. blowing in the wind. And so part of the criticism is that's not tapping into the emotion of people who are embarrassed by their hair thinning or their hair loss. It's showing someone who's doing quite well in that department. And, and so did it adequately capture the audience's attention that this is for them. So what obviously the, the you know the the relevance of this goes well beyond a battle between a single agency and a single client. What is it that makes this this case so interesting? Well, it's being called a test case because you know to my knowledge it's the first time an agency and client relationship and the obligations either side there have been tested by the court system in this way. So originally Icon took the clients to court over several unpaid invoices plus $575,000 that they had allegedly paid to media companies for these ads to run. Then the company, the client, launched a counterclaim saying that, you know, the ads were a complete flop, they generated no sales. And so that is being tested in terms of how responsible is Icon when Evolus accepted the ad and, you know, it, it's come out in court recently that they were very enthusiastic about the ad and, and they didn't feel comfortable speaking up because people were clapping and they, they were saying, yes, it's fantastic. So it comes down to that obligation. If you sign off on something and you say yes and you're on board – well, then are you responsible or or is the agency responsible for it not hitting the mark? I guess we'll maybe discover whether uh, the advertising industry can be seen as a profession because there have been plenty of case, test cases involving doctors, involving architects, involving lawyers, where they're demonstrated to have some sort of duty of care to their client. It'll be fascinating, Paul, to see whether the, the, the same thing applies here for the advertising industry. It really will be. And we've got to wait really for what the judge says on this, because it could well be that the defence that um, the client's using of these um, of these, these adverts not being very good turns out being disregarded by the judge anyway, that uh, it can't stand to a pure payments dispute. So that's something we'll have to watch. And on top of that, too, it could go to appeal as well. Well, as they say in all of the best newspaper reports, the case continues. And also this week, NAB restructured its executive leadership team in the wake of the Royal Commission into misconduct. And there's lots of misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry. This this week, the uh, turn in the shredder has been the insurance industry. Um, but one thing that we, we've seen happen is uh, Andrew Hager, who was in charge of NAB's uh, consumer banking and wealth management, which included MLC, uh, has effectively walked the plank and been uh, uh, re- re- effectively replaced in the role by former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird, who was already a part of that organisation. Now, he was criticised for withholding some key information about the fee-for-no-service scandal, uh, potentially in order to avoid negative publicity. Um, and I know there's uh, there's been some commentary that, you know, this this could be just the first executive of many. You know, he, he had the bad luck of happening to pick up the LLC hot potato and began to get to grips with it, but arguably didn't do it fast enough or transparently enough, which was some of the criticism. But that's a scary thought for all of the other executives. But I suppose the, 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 there's a couple of things to unwrap here, but one of which is just that, that sort of um, a reputational risk that you get for um, uh, banks and individuals within them for not doing the right thing. 
And secondly, we've just got the implications for what this means for the marketing structure at NAB. You know, it's really interesting with this, Tim. When I was looking at the structure at NAB, um, it reminded me of the conversation we had a few weeks back about Telstra and their restructure, that it's not really obvious where marketing actually sits within these structures. And I'm thinking this is something with big corporate Australia at the moment, these very fuzzy structures and this tendency, I think, to put marketing in the consumer end and yet you've got those institutional and corporate sides of things which equally have to have the similar branding, have to have uh, all of that reflected across the entire organisation. But it really does look to me like a, a blurring of the lines on this. Well, look, NAB did lose their chief marketing officer, Andrew Knott, and then their other high-profile marketer, Michael Nehos, uh, left and has now popped up at Virgin Australia. Interestingly, with this restructure, which involves Andrew Hagger leaving, former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird, who was already with the organisation, is now responsible for the bank's reputation, which to me is like a, a marketing and a PR responsibility. And lobbying too, I'm sure. Yeah, which as someone in our comment thread again pointed out, it means we've got two former premiers really responsible for banking's reputation in Australia in that Queensland's former premier, Anna Bly, is now the CEO of the Australian Banking Association. So perhaps the banks are trying to make it seem like they're focusing more on reputation and indeed the customer because they have, NAB now has numerous chief customer officers but no chief marketing officer yes and of course these people they 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 may know the reputational side quite well but that doesn't make the marketers oh it certainly doesn't make them make them marketers they're obviously well hopefully they're they're good lobbyists if they if they survived in the world of of state politics but i mean nab just has so many chief customer officers across all its different verticals because they're trying to say, you know, we, we care about the customer, the customer experience, what they want and what they need rather than marketing, which the banks seem to think alludes to what the organisation wants and needs. But I don't think the banks are actually fooling anyone that all they care about is the customer and the customer experience. And that's the thing that jumped out at me with that restructure too was that, okay, Mike Baird's a politician um, and he was a very effective politician, um, uh, very good at smiling and uh, saying the right things. But does he really know about genuine customer experience, genuine customer uh, delivering those results? And equally, David Gall, who took over uh, Baird's position as um, Chief Customer Officer of Corporate and Institution, uh, he's formerly the Risk Officer, which doesn't really strike you as somebody who would really be across answering the phones quickly and uh, having a nice website. I suppose the issue is, in the end, risk compliance seems to have moved up the agenda. You know, if we've seen one thing from the insurance side of things this week, you know, Alliance or the Australian um, arm of this big German company look like a bunch of arrogant assholes when it comes to compliance just the, the 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 language used in in the internal documents that have come out this week meanwhile we've got UE just seeming highly incompetent when it comes to settling claims it's going to be fascinating now whether the impression that consumers have of the insurance brands actually takes a hit because it that's where the focus seems to be now yeah it might but as the Royal Commission rolls on and on and on, I also wonder if there'll be consumer fatigue in terms of reading about this and absorbing this. We've already heard about what's going on in banking. 
the superannuation sector has already had its grilling as well. As more and more revelations come out and it's just more bad news, more poor practices, more victims, I do wonder if people will just tire of it and start thinking, okay, well, we know that's what they're doing. It's a bit like terrible telcos. We might just sort of become a bit immune to to what they're doing. And I think that's very true with the banks that we've all got the attitude that the banks are all pretty well bastards anyway. So, But you can see, going back to Viv's earlier point about the politicians coming in here, that having that spin on on a bad situation is probably what politicians do best. And so maybe this is going to be a good career prospect for retiring politicians come the next election. I think the uncertainty on this one is that in the weeks to come on the Mumbrella cast, we will be talking again about the banks all being bastards. <laughs> Coming up next, Vivian and our deputy editor, Josie Tutty, speak to ex-bachelor Sam Wood backstage at Mumbrella's Health Marketing Summit. And joining us this week on the Mumbrella cast is former bachelor and health and fitness guru Sam Wood. After becoming a household name on The Bachelor, Sam was able to leverage his fame to help launch his health and fitness program, 28 by Sam Wood. Sam is one of Australia's leading fitness experts and a personal trainer with over 17 years experience in the industry. Also joining us is Matthew Morgan, the marketing brains working behind the scenes to make it all happen. Matt has a background in advertising and has worked in London and Australia as a copywriter, creative director and head of strategy. If it sounds a little bit noisy in here, that is because we are backstage at the Health Marketing Summit, where both Sam and Matt are just preparing to go on stage. Um, Now, Sam, your background is as a personal trainer, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who know you for one thing, The Bachelor. Yes, yes, I think you're right. (laughs) So how did you tackle repositioning yourself from a reality TV star to someone qualified to give credible health and fitness advice? Uh, Yeah, it was a a bit of a process, but... I think the thing that always helped. Sorry, I'll cut. Yep, move the microphone a bit closer. I think the thing that always helped was that I didn't jump on the bandwagon after the show, and people soon worked that out. So even though I may have come onto their radar because of the show, I had a uh, kids' fitness company with forty franchises and a really, really big uh, personal training studio, and I think they added some fairly quick. Uh, credibility. Uh, I'd been to university to study and all that kind of stuff. So there was a fair bit supporting the fact that I had, I wasn't new to the industry. Um, and I kind of just went back to what I'd always done. So that was really, really helpful. But the, the flip side of that is I also didn't shy away from being the bachelor. I wasn't embarrassed about being the bachelor. In fact, uh, it was, it's turned out to be the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I absolutely embrace that. So I think when you, when you combine the two, I think, um, there's been a real shift over it's been three years now and I think you could literally feel the change happening month after month it was kind of Sam the Bachelor and I think he does some fitness stuff to now it's Sam the fitness guy and we know him from the Bachelor there's been a real real transformation over the three years. And both of you can probably talk to this but Sam your program 28 with Sam Wood is entering a really cluttered marketplace when sure. you launched it. You know, there's the likes of Tiffany Hall's TIFXO program. There's Michelle Bridges' 12-week transformation. You're also competing against other former bachelors with Tim Robards, yeah. the Robards <laughs> method. So yes. 
how do you cut through in such a busy marketplace? So, so I think first off, um, it's really exciting that there are lots of people in the space. We don't really see it as a cluttered space. We see it as you know, a whole load of people normalizing the concept of at-home fitness, online uh, fitness and health. Um, that's great. Uh, our job then is to ensure that we differentiate ourselves and have a point of difference in that market. We're not doing a category job of explaining what it is anymore, uh, which we probably were doing in the early days. Uh, we're now really focused on you know, talking to our core demographic and having a very consistent message. I also think it's become... I mean, even though Matt says we don't see it as being cluttered, I totally understand your question because I think from the outside looking in, it does feel like it's filling up quite fast. It's definitely become busier even since we launched three years ago. Like three years ago, there was Kayla and there was Michelle, but there wasn't a lot of others that were really notable or had a big following. And I think I think that was probably helpful for us, to be really honest, we you know, grew really, really quickly in a really short amount of time and really established ourselves. And a lot of that growth was coming from great word of mouth from our existing members. We weren't, didn't have huge marketing budgets back then or anything like that. So we were really lucky at people falling in love with our concept, with our program, quick workouts, home workouts became really, really popular. And it's almost the best form of flattery, I guess, that there's other people coming into that market and seeing the success you've had and now sort of doing similar things. But um, I think we had established ourselves as a leader before the rush sort of came, and I think that's been really helpful. And in your marketing efforts, how much have you relied on the success stories of people who are in the program? I, I follow you on Instagram, and I know that you have a, a very loyal 28er <laughs> in the form of a lady called Linda yeah. from <laughs> Scotland, <laughs> that's is it? That's right, yeah. So yeah. how much have you used people like Linda uh, as an example in your, in your marketing? A lot. I, th- I think I think it's always going to be your best marketing tool. I think no matter what comes into the market, whether it be your Google spend or your Facebook spend or billboards or radio ads, nothing's going to ever be as powerful as word of mouth. And me telling people my program is great is never going to be anywhere near as powerful as other people telling their friends how life-changing it has been. And um, I mean, Linda is a truly unique story a lady from scotland who watched the bachelor on youtube and fell in love with snajana and messaged me on social media to say sam i've heard you're bringing out a fitness program when it comes to scotland do you think you could let me know me explain to her it's online so she can already (laughs) do it in scotland and in 12 months she went from 130 kilos to 60 training in her lounge room in Scotland she didn't even she'd never cooked a piece of chicken in her life and she'd never been for a walk in her life and she was in her mid-50s she's now doing half marathons she does her 28 religiously every day she hasn't missed a workout in two years and she weighs less than half what she weighed and is the most beautiful human being you'll ever meet so stories like that are priceless and we have thousands of stories like that. She's very unique because she's from Scotland, obviously, <laughs> and, and a very powerful voice within our internal community. But, I mean, st- stuff like that is why we do what we do and you don't set out to obviously 
you don't you don't try and create these you know marketing gems, but when they turn out to be that way, it's just a, a double win because it puts a smile on your face in every way. Now you mentioned Facebook ads. Yes, um, <laughs> I'm sure Facebook is a big part of your strategy. In fact, I know because when I was doing research for you guys, a few days later, I started to notice Facebook <laughs> Good ads to see following it's working. me. Working. Yep. <laughs> so this might be one for you, Matt. Um, what, are you willing to say what proportion of your budget goes on Facebook ads, and and how important are they to your strategy overall? Uh, so Facebook's incredibly important to us. Uh, very simply, you know, our core audience of who are mums with kids at home. Uh, Facebook is a, a place that they hang out. It's a place they congregate. It's a place they spend spend a lot of their time. And we're talking about people who don't have much time. Um, so Facebook becomes a great place for us to find those people, which is why we do the advertising. We spend a lot of money on remarketing as well, which you've been, witne- been witnessing. But also it's a place for them to connect with other 28ers. So we have a, a closed community of about 40,000 28ers, people who've been through the program, including Linda. Um, and they're really there to support one another. And, and the community itself is, is one of our greatest assets, uh, not only for feedback on the program, uh, but also for helping other people achieve and get great testimonials from um now i know you mentioned facebook and instagram quite a lot I, i'm noticing that there's one social media platform you're not mentioning which is twitter <laughs> do you have any presence on twitter at the moment and if not why why aren't you using it Look, I, for me tw- twitter is an immediate um uh, place right it, it's great for news so something happens there's a disaster or something and and that's a great place to get an immediate kick on what's going on that that isn't our our space um uh, we're, we're here for for a much longer engagement and, and and a lot more things to say to people over a longer period of time in addition our core audience are just not on twitter mm-hmm. anymore uh, and i Sam, do you feel like Twitter might be dead for marketers? Uh, Is that going too far? No, no, that might be going too far. I definitely think it's got its place for some. Um, I think if you're in the news space or the journalism space or the, uh, you know, trying to break stories, it, it's definitely a great, a great medium. But it's funny, I didn't have a Twitter account till after The Bachelor and Channel 10 set me up with one. And I think I got 3,000 Twitter followers in the first two days and I never touched it again. So <laughs> I also think part of our 28 strategy is obviously using platforms that I'm familiar with because I need to be able to use them and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not massively tech savvy. So, um, you know, and, and you kind of look at where your audiences grow organically and I think that tells you where the people that follow you are and I mean I have 260,000 Instagram followers and I definitely don't have that many Twitter followers I think that's kind of telling us something and you also recently acquired the recipes for Sarah Wilson's I Quit Sugar. Yeah. Now, that was she was something of a marketing powerhouse for a while. There, there was a time when you almost you couldn't get away from the idea of I Quit Sugar and and the recipes for I Quit Sugar and and the anti sugar movement. How is that going to feed into your existing programs and and marketing and, sure. and recipes? Um, I mean, the the beautiful attraction was. Not just I've always admired Sarah. I think, you know, she's so strong in her belief. She's someone, uh, not, not just her personality, but her story is someone I look up to, but it's also perfectly in line with 28. So we are not a no sugar program. We are a low sugar program, but we have a very similar mission. And that is to reduce the amount of refined sugars that people are eating because they are a huge part of the obesity problem that we all face. And 
When, on, to be honest, the acquisition of Sarah's recipes was sort of twofold. It was improving our business by adding all of these amazing recipes um, and it was the ability to carry on that torch of Sarah, which is not just the recipe torch, but obviously a really strong brand, a really strong reputation and we've been thrilled to be able to do that. Now, speaking of recipes, I know there was some reports earlier this year about potential copies yeah. of recipes between a few similar similar outlets including yourself um what happened there uh so the the we we received an email from a journalist on the friday saying they had uh been tipped off or whatever you want to call it to the fact that we had copied a recipe um it happened that a protein ball recipe was similar to that on another program, which I think in today's day and age is going to happen. There's only about five ingredients in a protein ball, and I think four <laughs> of them are the same. So it was a weird – we didn't really could have – we said, look, that isn't the case. We have a completely open door, open communication policy. You're welcome to come to the 28 office and chat to us, and we'll show you how we do things. I mean, the other thing that was interesting was they asked us if they, – they said it seems like you – look at what your competitors do and they sort of said that as a, as a negative thing and we answered that openly honestly too and we said of course we do. We said what kind of business would we be if we weren't aware of what our competitors are doing. So we, we thought it was kind of strange. I mean as always these things get massively blown out of proportion once they then get to print and what we said was half quoted and sort of misrepresented but we, you know, we've, we've opened that question, answered that question openly since the start and it was just a bit of a beat up to be honest. And do you think with your profile you find yourself in the news and the headlines for things like this when perhaps less known influencers or brands that aren't spearheaded by a single person, do you Absolutely. find yourself getting more entangled in these sort of situations? Absolutely. They would love nothing more than I think two influencers getting in a fight with each other. Yeah. And, and I think that's for us, that's why we always have a very open door, open, transparent policy. We invite everybody uh, into the office, give them full access to the program, to everything that we're doing. Um, we've you know, always got nothing to hide. And, and I think that's the better approach when you're a brand like us. You know, we don't want to be the no comment type of, type of company. Um, that's just not who Sam is. And speaking of influencer marketing, um, there, there's been some headlines recently uh, where the government um, revealed that it had spent $600,000 of taxpayers' money in less than two years on an influencer campaign. They since ca came out and said that they were no longer going to do that because they didn't think it offered value for money. What are your thoughts on this situation? Do you think they're right? Yeah, yeah. so my point of view on this is this is the new world right this is here to stay influencer marketing is not a fad it is just is a part of the fabric of marketing moving forward it's just a reality that we all got to get to to to, to understand as a consequence we as marketeers incumbent on us as marketeers to put measurable results and measure measurability into what it is that we're selling and or buying uh, and I think, you know, if you look at some of that government uh, start, uh, some of the, the problems the government have got themselves into is just they hadn't set very clear KPIs from the outset. And therefore, at the end of it, you go, well, what did I spend $600,000 on? So I, I think once we've got sort of measurability uh, quantified or normalized, um, it, it will become a much easier uh, thing for people to justify spending money on. Um, but it, 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 it will happen because this is the world we now live in. And why has it been so difficult to get that ROI piece in there at the moment? It just feels like we're always talking about, yeah, we need to quantify the, the worth of influencers. Why hasn't it happened yet? 
Well, I, I, I can't speak for others, <laughs> obviously, um, but we work pretty hard when, when uh, we don't do many um, collaborations or, or partnerships with other brands. But when we do, we have very, very clear goals as to what we're going to do. And, and they typically look at number of posts, the uh, engagement we expect to get on those posts or on those pieces of, of content that we put together based on historicals and we have a mechanism if they don't reach that to make good right which is what you would do if you were selling anything else and, and so I, I think you know uh, I, and we're not the only ones there are lots of people doing it well uh, it's just having hard measurables things you can actually point to and say i spent my money and i bought this and that, that that's that's what we need but there's lots lots of people not doing that i think that the the thing it's the easiest target. If you have a campaign that doesn't necessarily reach the heights you're hoping for, I think to say that your spend, particularly a big budget like that, would be the easiest thing to perhaps say that that's the reason why. The reality is the only way you could properly test that is to run the campaign without any social influencer and then have that as the only variable that you changed and then measure the two against totally. each other, and I bet they didn't do that. And, Sam, one final question from me. Do you think that the age of the... Every man as the bachelor is over. We've got Sophie, <laughs> you know, we've got, we had Sophie Mark as the bachelorette. Now we've got Nick Honey Badger Cummins. Is it only going to be celebrities? Were you sort of the last one who, who got in there from nowhere? Maybe I was. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I find it hard to answer this question because I actually love the Honey Badger, but, uh, perhaps you could, you could be right. I think, um, so what I heard yesterday from a friend of mine from Channel 10 is that the ratings for the bachelor have gone up. Uh, 11% and almost the entire since last season and in, almost the entire increase is men. So what the Honey Badger has done is tapped into a male audience that wasn't there before because it's now kind of cool to watch The Bachelor or at least admit that you watch The Bachelor <laughs> even though in my time I had many a guy come up to me and ask for a selfie and say it was for his girlfriend but I was, <laughs> I, I was a bit dubious sometimes. I don't, I don't think it was but yeah that, I thought that was interesting. I heard that yesterday. Okay, I think that's probably all we've got time for. But thanks, guys, for joining us. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thank you. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. Thank you for supporting the Mumbrella Cast since we brought it back. If you haven't yet had a chance, we would love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. That helps other people find it. However, that is it for now. See you next week when we will be chatting to Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland. Toodle pick.